Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their advice. If you would like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. Now on to today's episode in which I talk with Daniil Rose about critical psychology, neurodivergent households, and autism assessments. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Danielle, thanks so much for joining me here on Autism Stories. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I just wanted to start out and kind of learn where does your story in the autistic community begin? Yeah, it, it sort of began with my son. He had been having some very sensory issues, which I related to. Um, it took me actually quite a long time to look into any sort of diagnosis for my son because he was pretty normal according to me and my family standards. Um, my, I suspect a lot of my family is neurodivergent as well and most likely autistic and ADHD. And um, uh, my friend actually turned me on to some websites about sensory processing, etc. And as I started to look into things for my son, I started to see myself reflected almost more so than my son. And then I just fell down the rabbit hole. It's interesting um, that, that you bring that up because one, I don't believe in normal, but we yeah, also me neither. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't exist. But at, but at the same time, you kind of know what you know. So within your family's context, everything was quote unquote normal. Yeah. And that's why I don't believe in normal, because uh, normal for me is quite outside of like what we think of as normative behaviors or expressions. So, um, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, I, I don't want to label it completely emotionally, but I will say it brings me a little sadness. When I when my son was little, I just said he danced through life. Right. And now that I know more about autism, it's like, oh, that's stimming. But when he was younger and pre-diagnosis and pre-understanding myself and him, it was dancing and it was beautiful. And so it is hard um, for me to imagine um, children who who have, uh, you know, schools or whomever in their life who look at this, you know, this kind of beautiful expression and different movement and automatically pathologize it. Now, I recently read something uh, that that you said, which I loved, um, which you talked about the day I was diagnosed as autistic was the day I became uh, normal, which uh, <laughs> which allowed you to finally have a space for to speak and a foundation to advocate for your, your son. So I'm wondering how has your advocacy changed since uh, this diagnosis? Yeah. Well, going back to like, I mean, fundamentally, there is no normal. And I think that's because everything is normal. So kind of the meaning behind that statement is simply that prior to everything that doesn't work for us makes us feel broken. Once I had autism as a foundation, autism's a thing. It's a normal, normal human variation. 
So there I was in my new normal, right? And it had context for everything. So just to kind of put that in that framework and why I would use a word like that. In terms of my advocacy, you know, it's gotten quieter in some ways. I see this a lot in the community. We get diagnosed, so much gets contextualized. We have our kids and we want to use our voices right away. And I really did and still do. But uh, as I started to hear from autistic people of color and particularly the black community, and then also just really understanding the diversity of opinions. And there's a lot of mushy information out there, but I mean, professionally right down through to the community. And so I realized I really wanted to get my grounding a little bit more. And that led me into the path of school. Um, I think that fundamentally my largest area of advocacy and hopefully activism will end up being in research and through through the degree that I'm hoping to get. However, I still want to do more face-to-face, more writing, and, you know, a presentation within the community. Right now, though, I feel like I'm just listening a lot and kind of diving into school and, um, and, and kind of figuring out exactly where I want to place myself realistically too, you know, social media can be brutal. So I'm a little scared to just put it all out there without really knowing exactly where I stand and feeling really confident in my place there. So I think listening is such a powerful thing. I get the opportunity to listen to you and other people that I get to talk to here on Autism Stories. And I learned so much through that process. Yeah. And storytelling is such a beautiful way of learning um you know in terms of research i'm very much interested in the stories um and that's uh that's really where my focus is i want to do a lot of qualitative research but but perhaps with quantitative elements in an interdisciplinary style um so i did i'm a very strong believer in the power of stories so i love this platform now you went through your diagnosis process during covid and you know, which was interesting to me because you were able to meet on uh, Zoom with the person that assessed you. So I'm just wondering what impact um, that meet the meeting on Zoom had for you during the assessment process. It was fine for me. I think um, the, the I guess the main area that it ended up being good for me is in that access here is hard and access for most adults um, getting a diagnosis and particularly adult women or uh, the AFAB presentation which is complex to kind of yeah I don't know if there's a more current and accurate word for that but people fitting into that presentation it can be very challenging to find a diagnosis so and with COVID because everything went home everything became accessible and I'm not everything, but I do find that a lot of people in the medical world actually had more accessibility because where prior to they didn't have local services. Suddenly um, there was a wider breadth of what we could access. So the zoom went fine. The, um, the assess- I went through two assessments. I went through uh, what I call a clinical assessment, which is um, a side D who specializes in autism and did more of talk therapy, DSM assessment. Um, and then I uh, had imposter syndrome still. And so I wanted to do the formal testing. So I found an MD who did formal testing and went through that process as well. And both came back with a 
positive autism diagnosis. I have to say in the end, the clinical was more valuable because he actually took the time to get to know me better. Whereas the questionnaires felt, you know, kind of trite and silly. <laughs> so, um, but uh, both processes were fine and I was grateful to finally have access where before there were barriers. Now, you know, thinking about access, there are so many barriers to getting an autism diagnosis. So whether someone is self-diagnosed or otherwise, I think is just as is valid. But uh, you live in a rural area, and I would imagine that can only make the process that much more challenging. So what was your experience with this? Yeah, uh, we have no formal diagnosis for adults in the state that take insurance. I did find one, um, but they were hours away, and I would have had to pay out of pocket, and uh, I would have had to pay out of pocket up front. Um, and so that was too large of a barrier for me. The PsyD happens to be local, um, and I found him through psychology today, but he's far enough away that still I do that via Zoom. Um, and so, uh, you know, but even for my son, who's eight um, and was diagnosed at seven, the waiting lists can be years at a time. Um, I happened to find one neuropsychologist who nobody knew. I had never heard a referral. I'd talked to so many doctors and he happened to have an opening, but I think the word is getting out that he's there because I have heard his waiting lists are getting quite long as well. So um, living in a rural area definitely has barriers. You know, in terms of, I absolutely agree, self-diagnosis is valid, but diagnosis can help with so many things, particularly just supports and, and self-advocacy in a more formal way, workplace, et cetera. And um, I would love to see the barriers in healthcare begin to be removed. Um, and that's a huge hurdle, but part of kind of how I see the advocacy and activism that has to happen certainly includes accessibility to healthcare. You had mentioned about, I guess, um, being part of a neurodivergent family. Um, and, you know, I think in those situations, there can be a clash with family members, especially in regards to uh, sensory needs. So do you have similar sensory experiences to your son? And if not, how do you manage that to support both of your needs? Yeah, that's incredibly challenging. And part of the advocacy work that I'm most interested in is neurodivergent parenting to neurodivergent children. Uh, you know, and I use neurodivergent broadly because my family happens to be autistic and ADHD, um, but certainly that applies to just autistic parents of autistic children as well, just because I know that there is some controversy of replacing autism with neurodivergent it's only that my family is truly neurodivergent, so it's hard to pinpoint one or the other. In that way, my son is very sensory-seeking at the moment, particularly in terms of sound, and he has trouble with volume modulation, and that is quite opposite to me. And there's very few, there are very few resources for parents of uh, for neurodivergent parents or autistic parents, and that is the most frustrating thing, even in, in the ADHD forums and the autistic autism forums or, you know, in terms of the healthy emotional regulation, oftentimes the parent is expected to be the regulator. But there's no tools for how does an ADHD parent regulate their ADHD child or how does an autistic parent on the verge of or going into meltdown regulate for their child, you know, and that is 
mushy, a very mushy area. In fact, it was through meltdowns that I ended up learning I was autistic because it was such a challenging time as I was getting overwhelmed and just completely losing it and losing my bearings and not knowing what was happening. I was an older mom, so I was 35 when I had my child, and you don't realize how carefully you've orchestrated your life until this little being comes in and just uh, shouts and sings his way through. And it's beautiful. And I have... the problem I have is I adore my son and, and his expression is beautiful. So he uses echolalia a lot and repetitive sounds, and but very loud. It doesn't take long for that to really completely deplete my spoons. And, you know, you go into the autism community and you see, like, let your child stim, let your child stim. And I know that he needs this and I know that I am done. For us, clear boundary setting has been very important. My son has trouble still at the age of eight being in a separate room as me. And I I think that's for co-regulation. I've read a bit about that. Um, I wish it was easier for me just to say, can I go upstairs or can you go in your room and do that? But he struggles a bit with that still. So I just, I've learned that I can feel a limit and um, we have kind of our own language for that. And I can say to him, we're here, we're at my boundary. I either need space, so you need to do that outside or in your room, or it needs to stop because I don't want to cross this threshold. Um, And I've just, I can't, I need a sensory break. The beauty of that is in reverse, when Rivers has hit, Rivers is my son's name, hit his threshold, he can say the same to me. And he's learning how to self-advocate to others as well. So as much as guilt as I feel for not always being uh, able to allow him to express himself 100% freely, I do see the benefit in teaching him and modeling for him self-advocacy and boundary setting. So you were, you were mentioning um, feeling a limit. You know, I'm really interested in energy, particularly kind of in that intersection with the autistic experience. So do you, are you feeling his his energy? Are you feeling energy of other people and kind of setting those boundaries for yourself? Yeah. Well, I feel I feel energy all around me. You know, it's it's interesting because I don't want to get into all of the like crappy stereotypes that exist around autism. However, one of them is that. Um, autistic people have trouble understanding other people's motivation or what they're thinking. And, and that is me. I have no idea what people are thinking ever. Um, it's a joke of mine. Like somebody will say like, you know what I'm thinking? And I'm like, probably not <laughs> because I, but I know what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. I, I know what you're feeling because I feel it. I know all of the feelings everywhere. I feel everything so deeply and intensely. Um, and so I, you know, there, that's a very different thing. Um, and so, yes, I absolutely feel my son and his feelings and emotions, and I feel everything around me. Um, I do have trouble setting boundaries around feelings. Um, it is, but around when I, but I am very sensitive to my own feelings. And there is a very, I have learned to identify my therapist kind of helped me with this and she calls it flipping my lid. And it's kind of when you're dysregulated, I, I think it's like you're, prefrontal cortex or your amygdala I I can't remember but it kind of 
it gets dysregulated and you can't control it anymore. And so it, it explains both meltdown status of just like, now I, I am beyond the limit of being able to rein myself in. And it also explains a bit of that ADHD to dysregulation. So when I'm, when I can feel the, um, like my nervous system rising, I can reach a point where I can say, that's it. I'm about to flip my lid. Now we've changed it to meltdown and we've changed it to sensory because he's old enough to understand that. But at a very young age, that was an easy way for us to communicate, both of us, that we we were just reaching that limit inside of ourselves and the way that it feels before we, we can't do anymore, if that makes sense. Beyond being a parent, right now you're in a graduate school, from what I understand. So, so that sounds like a lot of executive functioning and p potential overwhelm. What's yeah. been your process in trying to find a rhythm and flow to navigate this on, you know, on a daily basis? Yeah, so that was a big deal for me because it's been 20 years since I went back to school. And, and you know, I wasn't sure where I was headed when I started, but I actually am going to try to go for the PhD, which is daunting and exciting um, and scary. Uh, undergrad was terrible for me. So part of that was really needing to destigmatize ADHD medication and really think about that. And I did a lot of research about it. And so I did start a low dose of ADHD medication to help with my ADHD. I struggle tremendously with task paralysis, and that is one of the most frustrating things. It, from an autism perspective, burnout is a huge issue for me. Um, and so that's really where I've had to be careful. And I can already see, feel myself kind of like, getting a little wobbly and so in my program they require us to do not they require in fact my my, my program is incredibly flexible but I also want to I'm 42 years old I want to get done um so they you, you would go throughout the whole year no no breaks and so I have um my plan is to double up in the fall or spring so that I can take a month and a half off every summer um and spend that time with my son traveling and doing the things that I need to completely rejuvenate. Um, I've also registered with the disability services at my university so that if I need um, special accommodations, later deadlines, differences in how I present my material, I can do that. I'm using, I have major problems with audio processing and visual processing. I found interestingly that for a lot of my texts, if I can get them digitally, which I'm trying hard and, and theoretically I'm supposed to be able to. Um, if I do text to voice while I read along, then I'm doing pretty well. Um, and I think, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to name a brand, but Speechify is what I've found is an app that allows me to do both the that it highlights the text and then I can process the information. It takes me a lot more time. So far, it's working. And honestly, I'm going to school for my special interest, <laughs> which is a, a perk or a bonus. I've heard a lot of people talk about how if autistic people could follow their special interests, it could be potential career paths. So I'm lucky in that I have a lot of passion and energy behind the learning. I've also, I'm at Antioch University and it's an independent studies program and they allow self-design. And so I am 
literally writing my own classes, picking my own teachers, picking my course materials, then it goes through the administration to make sure that it can get accredited, that it is in fact hard enough to get credit, that it meets all of the requirements of the school, and they just incorporate it into their classes. So the beauty of that too is I have complete control because um, I'm a little demand avoidant too. And so like having control over every step is, is such a beautiful thing. So I feel I'm only, I'm, uh, I guess, two semesters in now, but I'm feeling really good about it so far. I, I'm hoping that this will work out. So, And because you're kind of creating this, how, like, so then what will, like, what is your degree going to be and what do you kind of hope to do once you become Dr. Danielle? Yeah, absolutely. So what I'd like to study is critical psychology with a, a focus on neurodivergent or neurodiversity studies. And so critical psychology, um, like liberation psychology is a branch of critical psychology. And I'd like to study some of the various branches, but critical psychology is trying to take back kind of the pathology within psychology and reframe it from the experiential view. So, um, and so for focusing on neurodiversity and neurodivergence, reframing our entire understanding of this from the view of those of us who experience it. And critical psychology really does specifically, purposefully aim to use its findings for social justice, which is a huge special interest of mine too. So they don't pretend, I mean, there's objectivity and subjectivity. I don't honestly believe in objectivity. <laughs> I just don't believe it exists. Even within, I mean, in very, not within psychology anyway. Psychology is so subjective in how you interpret it that even when people say they're not bringing biases in, I think you can find a lot of places where they are in fact bringing biases in. Um, and so I like that critical psychology says like, why are we trying to be objective? We're here to help people. Let's actually listen and create frameworks and tools and help people and so that's a huge thing for me and then beyond that getting into research and I, I really love neuroscience I think what's happening is we're taking neuroscience and we're interpreting it in very weird ways so I'm interested in phenomenology and various approaches that actually ask the human being to talk about their experiences and then looking at it at the neurology um, con concurrent to the experience could be a really fascinating way of reviewing what we know and changing those models. So that's really what I'm most interested in. You know, it, as we've been talking, you know, I've heard you talk a lot about listening. It, it sounds to me like hearing from people from the actual lived experience is really important to you. It absolutely is. You know, I think, you know, like I said, I love neurology and, and I, there are certain things that people that neurotypical uh, researchers have tried to do that I appreciate. I feel like they're trying to do the right thing, but they get things wrong. And I think fundamentally they don't at all understand the experiential side of things. And then experience alone doesn't always work because a lot of us are living with multiple diagnoses or, you know, a even environmental influences that shift all of it. So I love this idea of teaming up the science with experience and finding patterns and finding um, themes and starting to truly understand it and also question. So I listen to all of these 
Yeah, I like my lectures or podcasts or of neuroscientists. And I'm like, once they see what they see, I just am like, you're asking all the wrong questions. Like you don't understand. <laughs> Clearly you don't understand the experience. And so like, how can we take these stories and these experiences and like put them into what we know, you know, and part of that to what I'm contending with right now and what I'm hoping to do my graduate thesis on is I'm hearing very strongly from the black autistic community that they don't feel represented anymore anywhere, not in research, not within our community, not anywhere. And so I also want to do qualitative, um, like narrative research on some of the underrepresented communities. I'd love to do things with the non-speaking community, etc. And um, but for my thesis for grad school, I'm hoping to do a qualitative research study on the black experience of autism and start to really put it out there, like hear voices and include those experiences in our narrative, because also how can we call ourselves a community of advocates if we're not listening to the most marginalized voices in our community, right? And we're not mm-hmm. representing them than who are we are representing ourselves only. And so specific, particularly from a research lens, I really want to pull in some of the less listened to voices. And I say voice, I don't know if it's correct or not. I use voices for non-speaking autistics too, because I do believe they have things to communicate. And so I kind of just wrap it up. I don't know if there's a better term for that, but when I say voices, I'm including non-speaking autistics as well. That's a critical part and why I'm listening still, um, because I don't think we hear those parts of the community loudly enough. And beyond uh, this interview, how can people learn more about you? Yeah, I'm a little quiet on social media right now because of that regrouping, but I think the best way is on Instagram. It's um, autistic underscore pros, P-R-O-S-E. Always message me. And as I regroup, that will certainly be a place where I will show up. I'm also on Facebook um, under Danielle Prokopenko Rose. And I do more storytelling there. I have to say as much as I love Instagram and I've done graphic design in the past and I've tried Twitter and it just doesn't work for me. I do love that Facebook allows the free form writing, even though I have tons of problems with Facebook <laughs> at a, as a company or a platform. But I have to say the like Twitter 20, you know, whatever the character count for me is so challenging because we have such complicated, nuanced conversations that have to start happening. So I am struggling with platforms and I do hope we find better spaces to really talk about things the way we need to. But absolutely, Instagram is a great place to reach out to me. And as I start to find my voice again within this community, that's one of the first places I'll be showing up. So... Well, Danielle, it was a wonderful experience getting to know you a little bit. Thanks for your time and uh, your spoons uh, in talking with me today. thank you. Yeah, thank you. It was an absolute pleasure, so thank you for having me. Thanks so much to Danielle for the conversation. To learn more about Danielle, please check out the link in the podcast description for this episode. Did you know that Autism Personal Coach provides extraordinary support to live self-sufficient and purpose-driven lives through our customized coaching. If this is something that you're interested in, then please visit AutismPersonalCoach.com for more information. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, 
foe or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable experience as you when listening to autism stories, it would be very much appreciated. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.